Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Professor Jay Garfield. J.L. Garfield directs the Smith's Logic and Buddhist Studies programs and the Five College Tibetan Studies in India program. He is also visiting professor of Buddhist philosophy at Harvard Divinity School, professor of philosophy at Melbourne University, and adjunct professor of philosophy at the Central University of Tibetan Studies. Garfield's research addresses topics in the foundations of cognitive science and the philosophy of mind, the history of Indian philosophy during the colonial period, topics in ethics, epistemology, and the philosophy of logic, methodology and cross-cultural interpretation, and topics in Buddhist philosophy, particularly Indo-Tibetan, Madhyamaka, and Yogacara. Garfield's most recent books are Minds Without Fear, Philosophy in the Indian Renaissance, Dignaga's Investigation of the Percept, A Philosophical Legacy in India and Tibet, Engaging Buddhism, Why It Matters to Philosophy, Moon Paths, Ethics and Emptiness, and Madhyamaka and Yogacara, Allies or Rivals. He's currently working on a book with Yasuo Deguchi, Graham Priest, and Robert Scharf, What Can't Be Said, Paradox and Contradiction in East Asian Philosophy, a book on Hume's treatise, The Concealed Operations of Custom, Hume's treatise from the inside out, a large collaborative project on Guluk Sakya epistemological debates in 15th to 18th century Tibet, following on Tsong Lotsawa's 18 Great Contradictions in the Thought of Tsong Kappa, and empirical research with another team on the impact of religious ideology on attitudes towards death. So with that, hello, Jay. Thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure. So, Jay, you have a really interesting history, which I want to start out talking a little bit about. You went to a very Western philosophical um, PhD program at the University of Pittsburgh, um, a, a, a fairly analytic school. Is that correct? Yes. And uh, and then you ended up uh, becoming very interested in Buddhist philosophy. So I would just love to hear a little bit about the kind of story and the arc of how you came from Western to Buddhist philosophy or how you were, became interested in that intersection. Well, um, as you said, I went to a graduate school that really did not introduce me at all to non-Western philosophy mm. and finished my Ph.D. like so many people finish their Ph.D.s in philosophy not knowing that there was such a thing as non-Western philosophy. Right. But my first teaching job was at Hampshire College. And literally on my first day in my first grown-up office at my first real job, when I was unpacking my books, um, a tall kid strolled into my office and asked me to um, help supervise his senior thesis mm. on connections between medieval Tibetan epistemology and the social contract tradition. And I just burst out laughing. I thought someone paid him $5 to give me a welcome to Hampshire joke. And, you know, this was, you know, increased by the fact that he was barefoot, had long hair and a daishiki and so forth. So it, it looked pretty stereotypical. And he was kind of appalled because he'd been studying classical Tibetan with Bob Thurman, who then was teaching at Amherst College right up the road. He'd been working on his French for his work on Rousseau, and he had this really interesting project, and this brand-new assistant professor was just laughing in his face. And um, Wow, so you must have come off as fairly conservative then. Well, I think I came off as pretty stupid. Um, <laughs> and so he said, listen, uh, Bob Thurman up the road will do the Tibetan stuff with me. I just want you to keep me honest on Locke and Rousseau. You can read Locke and Rousseau, can't you? And I said, yeah, I can read Locke and Rousseau. And so I figured, you know, what the hell, I'm here to teach, I'll agree to do this. And so I agreed to co-supervise this thesis with Bob Thurman. 
And of course, that meant that I had to read the material that he was reading, albeit in translation, mm -hmm. which at that point was the translations of the, it was the rough draft of Bob's translation of Tsongkhapa's Essence of Eloquence. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a highly technical, very complex intertextual discussion of hermeneutic theory in the Tibetan tradition. And I was totally lost and, and, and at sea with this, and it really was a, an enormous fight to understand any of it, actually. But I understood a little bit of it by the end of, end of the year, and it was a pretty good thesis. And then I said goodbye to that, because I had a career to get started and work to do in logic mm -hmm. and foundations of cognitive science, which was, was and still is one of my specialties. Mm -hmm. um, so that just sat there for about seven years, until there was a major curricular battle at Hampshire. Um, and it was a battle over a very strong multicultural requirement. And I was on the losing side, and I'm ashamed of the side I was on, and I'm really glad in retrospect that my side lost. But the proposal was this, um, and it's one that Hampshire called and still calls uh, in its kind of politically overheated way, the third world expectation. Mm -hmm. um, but it has nothing to do with Joseph Bros Tito. It's about multiculturalism, really. And it's a requirement attached to the student's concentration, what many colleges would call major. Mm -hmm. And the rule is really simple. Uh, no matter what you're studying, you can't just study the way that it's um, pursued in Western culture. You've got to study the way your discipline is pursued in some non-Western culture as well. And that's true whether you're studying art history or physics or chemistry or philosophy or politics, whatever it is. You've got to study some non-Western version of your discipline. And um, it passed. And of course, you can't require students to study things that you don't teach. So it was also a requirement. This is why I opposed it, because I saw it then as a violation of academic freedom. Hmm. Again, I think I was wrong about that. Um, but it required faculty members all to effectively retool to support the third world expectation and or leave. And the college made a lot of uh, faculty development money available for people to retool. And I kind of panicked and thought, well, I don't know any non-Western philosophy. And then I remembered medieval Tibetan epistemology. I could learn enough of that maybe to put a week into my epistemology course and pay my debt to the third world expectation. So I applied for a little grant basically to hire Bob Thurman to teach me a little bit of epistemology over the summer. And he did. And it was fun and students liked it. And so the next year I applied for a larger grant to develop a comparative epistemology course in Buddhist and Western epistemology. And that was even more fun. Students liked it even more. And um, so I started getting interested in this stuff. And there was an NEH Summer Institute coming up at the University of Hawaii on Nagarjuna and Asian thought. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool if I got into that and spent a summer in Hawaii studying Nagarjuna with people who actually know about this stuff? Mm. I didn't think I'd be accepted, but I applied, and damn, I got in. And it was really fun, and I learned a lot. And I had a sabbatical coming up. And um, I've been, I'd been asking people, you know, where do you go if you're really serious about learning something about Tibetan and Indian Buddhist philosophy? And everybody said, oh, you want to go to the Central Institute of Higher Tibetan Studies in Sarnath in India um, and try to work with the scholars there. And so I applied for an Indo-American fellowship. And to my astonishment, I got it. Mm. And my family off to India and spent a year at Sarnath and never looked back. And it's been, this area has been a major research interest for me ever since. So that's the short answer, short 
story of how I got into it. Well, that's really interesting because it's, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, there are schools like Hawaii and, and I guess now Hampshire College, which are, uh, you know, uh, uh, forward thinking and in, in really trying to diversify. But that's not the status quo, is it? I mean, in, in many departments. And, and what I think is interesting about your work is that you talk a lot about how Western philosophy is just called philosophy, and, and any non-Western philosophy is, is, you call it the marked case, meaning it's always, you know, either Indian philosophy or Buddhist philosophy or Taoist philosophy. It's, it's never simply, you know, philosophy. So can you talk a little bit about the, the colonial, colonialist reasons for this and, and what effect it has had on our attempts to engage with non-Western philosophies? Yeah, I think it's a bit of a scandal, actually. Mm. Um, it's not just, by the way, Hawaii that is that sure, yeah. offers non-Western philosophy in its graduate program. There's several other programs, but it, only a handful, only a handful. Right. And in most philosophy departments, and in particular most of the important graduate programs in philosophy in, in the United States and in many parts of the world, philosophy means Western philosophy, means European philosophy, broadly right. considered. Um, and, you know, that's not true in a lot of other humanities disciplines. You wouldn't have religion departments that only do Christianity and Judaism and Islam. People right. would laugh at them. You wouldn't have a history department that only did history of white people. Uh, people would laugh at you. You wouldn't, couldn't have a literature department that only addressed literature written by European people. People would laugh at you. Yeah. But philosophers do this quite blithely and sometimes take it as a kind of badge of honor that they're too rigorous, uh, too pure to admit philosophy that's uh, written by people outside the European tradition. And they're often quite happy to say this without having ever read it, mm -hmm. um, and on the grounds that it's not sufficiently rational. And they know this on the basis of no evidence whatsoever uh, from the standpoint of their uh, rational evidence-based uh, program. So, for instance, if you want to read a nice um, defense of that view, you can look at um, Nicholas Tampio's recent piece in Eon, where he uh, entitled, Not All Things Wise and Good Are Philosophy, where he tries to argue that philosophy really just means that which the Greeks and the Europeans did, and everything else is just a wisdom tradition. Right. And that, that word wisdom tradition sounds like it's kind of an honorific. But it's really a disparagement. We don't have departments of wisdom traditions, right? Um, yeah, that's and it's true. And a way of sort of setting something aside as kind of primitive, um, maybe kind of cool, but not sufficiently um, serious mm -hmm. to be treated by, by philosophers. Um, I, I regard this as just of a piece with Orientalism and the Colonialist Project um, that consists in a systematic, explicit or implicit disparagement of the intellectual traditions of people who aren't European. Um, and as I say, it, the disparagement is almost always affected by people who have absolutely no acquaintance mm -hmm. with the traditions they disparage. Um, they should be ashamed of themselves. Um, our own intellectual tradition tells us that, you know, we should be making these judgments based upon evidence, based upon careful consideration, mm -hmm. not just uh, upon a kind of uh, prejudice. Um, but once you begin looking at the philosophy of India, the philosophy of China, the philosophy of Africa, Native American philosophy, philosophy of other indigenous peoples, you realize that the world is blessed with a wealth of philosophical traditions, um, many of which... Um, offer insights, arguments, ways of taking up problems that are different enough 
from those that we find in the broad European tradition to be novel and interesting to us, but recognizably similar enough in their subject matter, their approach, their concerns, that we have something to talk about. Yeah. So not so alien that, you know, we might as well be, you know, learning about divination, um, but not so similar that we might want to say, oh, yeah, been there, done that, we do it, we do that only better. Um, and in my experience, any philosopher who has seriously examined the philosophical traditions um, of people outside of Europe has found them to be fascinating, interesting, and um, and worthy of study. The problem isn't that people read this stuff and disparage it. The problem is that people disparage it without reading it. And what that does is that it, it, it impoverishes our own tradition. It deprives us of insights. It deprives us of interlocutors. It deprives our students of things they ought to know. And it also makes us look embarrassingly um, narrow, embarrassingly introverted, and quite frankly, embarrassingly racist. Mm. Um, so I've been really on a warpath lately. I, you might have seen a piece by Brian Van Norden and, and, and me in the New York Times earlier this year that generated a bit of a firestorm where we suggested that if philosophy departments are really proud of their Eurocentrism, they should just, you know, go all the way and call themselves departments of European philosophy. Yeah, I was actually just going to ask you next about that. I'm just I'm curious just, what uh, you, the kind of responses that you got from other academic philosophers after that article came out. Well, I was honestly, I mean, people think I'm being disingenuous, but I was honestly surprised. I thought that we'd be basically ignored, mm. or I thought that if people paid attention to it, they would offer the range of normal um, I say normal because they're the most usual, yeah. um, almost plausible excuses like, oh, gee, we'd really like to diversify, but we can't get the dean to give us enough lines. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, gee, we'd like to diversify, but it's so hard to find people who can teach these things. Or, oh, gee, we'd like to diversify, but in order to do it responsibly, we need to learn these languages and it's too hard. Or, you know, any of these things, which you can respond to, but these are the things you normally hear. Instead, if you take a look at the comments, we had 800 comments in a day on the stone. Wow. About a dozen major blogs that picked this up. Brian Van Norden has kept a catalog of our responses. I find it too depressing. Um, <laughs> the, um, and most of them, not all of them, not all of them, but most of them were vitriolic, uh, xenophobic, um, and, and sometimes downright angry, uh, people who really wanted to defend the purity of Western philosophy and the fact that philosophy would somehow be diminished or demeaned by um, attention to stuff written by people who don't look just like us. Or, again, the kind of thing that Tampio does, and that is to say, oh, it would be disrespectful to them to treat them as philosophy because it would be a kind of colonial appropriation. We should instead have reverence to them as distinct wi wisdom traditions that have nothing to do with us. I point out, by the way, that Tampio <clears throat> cites particular people as not philosophers, including Confucius or Kongzi and Chandrakirti, and he's admitted that he's actually never read Chandrakirti and has only the most passing uh, and, and glancing familiarity with Kongzi and no other Chinese uh, sources. So again, he's simply saying, oh, gee, we should reverence this stuff, not call it what we're doing, but mind you, I'm not going to read it in order to have evidence for any of that. And that's the kind of thing that we got. One professional philosopher, um, offered the remarkably, frankly, racist claim that there can't be Native American philosophy because Native Americans haven't been literate long enough to do philosophy. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And this guy actually teaches in a North American philosophy department. No. Um, so 
And it, it was actually shocking to me and sometimes a little bit um, embarrassing because I don't want to think of my colleagues as, uh, as quite that retrograde, though I'm afraid to say that most of them are. Not most, many of them are. Mm. Wow. Okay. So, so, yeah, it's so. a long uphill battle. Now, it's a battle in which there's been a lot of progress. I also want to point that out. If you take a look at um, where philosophers advertise jobs, the, the jobs for philosophers posting, <clears throat> there's been a steady... Um, and significant increase in the number of positions being advertised that ask for an area of competence or an area of specialty in non-Western philosophy. And that's a good thing, and that's a result of the kind of steady pressure by a number of us um, in the field. But it's starting from a very low baseline, and we have a long way to go before the representation of non-Western philosophy in the field, in the journals, um, and in the conferences is anywhere near um, a reflection of the importance of the non-European traditions in philosophy uh, writ large. Mm. Wow. Well, at least we're moving in the right direction. That's good to yeah. hear. So, just still, for instance, happy to call a course on ancient Greek philosophy, ancient philosophy. Sure, yeah. And if they offer an Indian philosophy course, as you point out, they call it Indian philosophy. So there's this kind of marked versus unmarked case. What that does is it serves to put at the center of the field the unmarked case, the Western. And even when you include other stuff, if it gets marked as kind of specially different, then you've got this kind of center pole of normal stuff and then odd stuff that you're adding. And that's a little bit uncomfortable, too. Yeah. That's at least the transition point. Mm. So you advocate in, um, in, in your work cross-cultural philosophy instead of comparative philosophy. That's right. You draw that distinction. So what are the stakes in that difference for you? Okay, I mean, this might be a very fine distinction that most people don't care about. <laughs> I care about it a little bit. I think the rhetoric is important. Um, the term comparative philosophy was introduced in the 1890s by a great Indian philosopher named Bajendranath Seel, who taught in uh, Calcutta University and in Presidency College in, in Calcutta. He was primarily a philosopher of science. And uh, Seel introduced the term as a way of trying to increase interest in the Indian tradition in particular. And he argued that we should be doing this because to compare two things is, as he put it, to regard them as of coordinate rank. That is, he thought that the first step towards getting people to take Indian philosophy as seriously as they take European philosophy is to urge them to be compared so that they would at least be on the same footing. I see. And I think that was right. That was an important historical moment when one philosophical tradition was largely ignored um, in favor of another. Now, by the 1940s and 1950s, um, philosophers in India in particular, but I think elsewhere, um, were getting a little bit uncomfortable with the term comparative philosophy. Um, so um, another great Indian philosopher, um, A.C. Mukherjee, um, Anakul Chandra Mukherjee, who taught at um, the University of Allahabad, um, points out in the presidential address that the trouble with comparative philosophy is it suggests that it's just enough to kind of, as he put it, to note stray differences and similarities and to say, oh, gee, this is kind of like this and this is kind of like this. And that allows you to 
ignore the details and not take the tradition seriously as something with which to engage, yeah. as yeah. opposed to something to kind of study as an object. So you can think about comparative philosophy as a kind of necessary move because treating Asian philosophy, for instance, as an object of study is um, a first step to taking it seriously. But what you want to do is to try to treat it, put it on the subjective side, to put it as something that you inhabit, work with, take as part of your own identity as a philosopher, um, this kind of network of texts. And that requires simply thinking of philosophy as a kind of cross-cultural universal, something that we engage with, not in order to compare it, to find out whether, I don't know, Shunzi is really um, more like a utilitarian or a Kantian, right? right. But rather right. to engage with his arguments, along with the arguments of Mill and Kant, in trying to understand ethics, to not just try to figure out whether Chandrakirti is like Hume or different from Hume, but if you're studying causality and the history of thought about causality, to study both Chandrakirti and Hume. Um, and that's a normalization, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to a kind of looking at the familiar and the alien and comparing them. The way that you normalize is to put them all in the same basket and then play with that basket. I see. Okay, so I have a, a um, I guess, kind of a critical question. And... Um, and even though I think that in engaging Buddhism, you uh, you go to great lengths to kind of uh, articulate what you're doing. So I, I don't think that you're, you know, unconscious of these limitations or anything. And and maybe this is in some sense an inappropriate question. But but I wanted to ask it just to kind of incite maybe a conversation around um, what you've actually already mentioned, which were charges made in, in the article about um, cultural appropriation. So anyway, so the, um, the question I had about it, about engaging Buddhism was about your decision to bracket out um, the issues that aren't, as you say, sites of engagement with Western philosophy. And so I guess my... Uh, I guess my concern was, isn't that like inviting someone to, you know, to a dinner party and then telling them that they can only talk about things that have been deemed suitable by, you know, the majority of the people there? So, for example, like soter soteriology, you bracket out of the conversation, which some would say is, is the essence of, of many um, Indian and East Asian traditions. So could someone say that there's a Western bias there with regards to sites of discourse? Um, yeah, one could say that, but, I th but I'm, I'm going to reject the dinner party analogy, which I think is a really interesting one and is, is the right one to think about. Um, so um, let me back up a little bit in order to move forward. Okay. And I want to back up to the kind of vexed terrain of trying to understand the relationship between the use of two terms in the Western Academy mm -hmm. and then kind of move over to, um, to Asia and then come back. And that's the terms of philosophy and religion. Um, yeah. So yeah. if you were to have asked um, Thomas Aquinas or Duns Scotus or any of the scholastic philosophers in early Europe, whether they were doing philosophy or religion, you would have got a really quizzical look because those things weren't distinguished. Right. Right. Um, philosophy was undertaken by religious people and religion was taken to be a philosophical pursuit. Um, things changed, everything changed with Galileo because there um, the kind of epistemological um, approach of the church and the epistemological approach of the new science diverged dramatically and the claims that they were each making regarding the nature of reality and as people saw eventually with relation 
uh, with respect to the nature of humanity, was going to change dramatically. And so people who called themselves philosophers, who were committed to kind of dispassionate rational inquiry, had to choose sides. And in Europe, philosophy, the new discipline of, the new discipline of philosophy, if you want to think of it, mm. chose the side of science as opposed to religion. And so there's always been a clear, well, relatively clear distinction in the Western Academy between philosophical and religious thought. Now, it's not an ironclad distinction. We have, you know, philosophical theology and philosophy of religion and lots of gray areas in between. But um, we know what we mean when we talk about philosophy versus religion in the Western Academy. Um, Galileo isn't replicated in Asia, and in particular, as a, uh, to come back to the book that you were talking about, in the Buddhist tradition. Mm -hmm. So there was never a need for anybody to take sides between religion and something else. And so you don't get a very meaningful distinction between philosophical and religious thought um, to draw in, in that tradition, not because somehow the philosophical thought is all religious, but because that distinction doesn't get thematized. Right. Okay. Um, now, if what we're talking about doing is building a dialogue between what we call philosophy in the West and what's going on in the philosophical traditions, uh, the Buddhist philosophical tradition, let's be concrete about that here, mm -hmm. um, then what we want to do is to look at the ideas, the arguments, the texts, and the issues um, in the Buddhist tradition that can be brought into fruitful dialogue with um, ideas that we mess around with in the Western tradition. Mm -hmm. And so this is not my book, Engaging Buddhism, is not meant to be a general introduction to the Buddhist world, as I point out, right. general introduction to Buddhism. That would require talking about a lot of stuff that, quite frankly, most philosophers don't care very much about. Um, but it was meant to inspire an engagement with Buddhism by Western philosophers. And so that meant to um, show where conversation um, really could happen in ways that Western philosophers would recognize as philosophical as opposed to what they would recognize as religious conversation. Mm -hmm. So to go back to your dinner party analogy, um, it would be more like this. Um, I invite you to a dinner party uh, with a whole bunch of um, people who are, I don't know, um, maybe doctors, and, and they're not real interested in other stuff. They're kind of really hardcore medical people. Mm -hmm. And so I say to you, you know, I know that what you really want to talk about is art history and politics, but these people don't really know about that. Um, but you know a lot about medicine, so you can have a good conversation if you want to talk to them about medicine. But if you try to bring the conversation into politics and art history, they're going to kind of stare at you blankly because they're not going to know what to say and they're not going to care very much. So here's the stuff these people are interested in. Mm -hmm. And so Engaging Buddhism was meant to show that the Buddhist tradition has got a lot to say about the things that concern philosophers. Not to say, oh, and by the way, there's all this other stuff. I mean, I could have talked about Buddhist art history, but that would have interested philosophers. Similarly, I think that a lot of um, there are a lot of issues that, that Buddhists talk about in religious context that aren't as of as much interest 
to Western philosophers. Mm. That, that, that's the reason for that choice. I see. So another question I have that's sort of in in the same vein, I guess, um, is you know is the word the, the word philosophy and and uh, which is you know obviously it's Western in origin, but. Um, uh, to identify what's happening in to identify that with what's happening in other traditions, and I guess I'm thinking of the word darshana from the mm-hmm. Indian context that translates, you know, as way of seeing or perspective, and 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 which is a kind of a meaning that I guess seems to me to imply a slightly different engagement with the world than what um, I don't know contemporary Western philosophy is doing. So I guess what are your thoughts on on how seamlessly that word or that uh, the umbrella of philosophy is appropriate? to describe what all the traditions are doing when they're thinking? Okay, I think that's a really good question, but let's talk about words for a minute. Um, for one thing, of course, every word in English is a Western word, um, and <laughs> every word in Sanskrit is an Indian word. Um, and so, gee, um, to use any term in, to translate, you're going to be, you're going to be translating, right? right? That's what totally. you're to do. Um, you, you focused on darshana, which can also just mean a view. Yeah. And we talk about philosophical views in the West. So I could talk about the difference between Descartes' view and Hume's view. And I would translate those, if I were translating them into Sanskrit, as Descartes' darshana or uh, Hume's darshana, right? Their viewpoints. When we talk about the philosophical systems in India, we talk about them as different darshanas, different viewpoints, just as we might talk about empiricism and rationalism or phenomenology as different kinds of darshanas in the West. And that wouldn't be problematic. There's another term in Sanskrit, that's relevant, and that's Siddhanta. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the uh, the establishment of a position. And um, we can think of philosophy very much as that way. It's about establishing positions. It's about giving reasons. Um, so what you're not going to find is a Sanskrit term that has exactly the same etymology as the Greek term philosophy, love of wisdom. But when we do philosophy, we're not saying, gee, now let's engage in love of wisdom. Right? That's etymological. That's not semantic. When we talk about philosophy, we're saying let's do a rational analysis into the fundamental nature of reality. And that's what we do when we're engaged in a siddhanta, in establishing a position and arguing and defending it. So I don't think there's, I don't think there's a problem there at all. Okay, great. great. So let, now let's switch gears a bit. And I want you to talk a little bit about um, someone and, uh, and a tradition you've done a lot of work on, which is Nagarjuna and and. Uh, Madhyamaka, am I pronouncing that right? Yep, you are. Madhyamaka. Yep. So, would you talk a little bit about uh, Nagarjuna, Madhyamaka, and what kind of um, you know the positions are uh, within this philosophical system and how it might be relevant to us? Sure. Um, I'm trying to work out exactly at what level to to pitch this. So yeah, that's you, a big tell, question. <laughs> tell me if I'm if I'm either being too technical or too um, elementary. Okay. Um, so Nagarjuna is a philosopher who lived probably in about the second century in South India. Um, I say probably because there's some dispute about his dates and some dispute about his location, but most people are converging around second century in, in South India. And he's really the first philosopher of what gets comes to be called the Madhyamaka school or middle way school. Madhyamaka just means middle way mm-hmm. uh, in Indian Buddhist philosophy. Um, the middle way school is a school that has as its sutra foundations, that is the kind of canonical 
texts that are attributed to the Buddha, long footnote, none of these sutras are actually from the time of the Buddha, and that's another long story mm -hmm. about canonization, which we don't need to worry about, um, what are called the Prajnaparamita, or Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. And that's a body of literature that emerges in Sanskrit right around the turn of the millennium, so from about the first century BCE through about the first or second century CE, these texts are emerging. Um, these texts are moving to center stage. See, there's also, this may be more than you want to know, um, a, bit of, a bit of a debate about the degree to which the Madhyamaka school and the Mahayana tradition in which it's, um, in which it's located is a revolutionary development in Buddhism or just a kind of evolution of earlier ideas. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a kind of significant evolution to take a middle, a middle path. Um, and so ideas that were already implicit um, in earlier Buddhist thought suddenly come to center stage and become the objects of enormous uh, philosophical focus. And the most important one, and the one with which Nagar, well, the most important two, uh, sounds like a Monty Python sketch, I know. <laughs> And, and the ones with which Nagarjuna is most directly concerned in his major text, uh, Mulamajamaka Karaka, or the fundamental verses on the middle way, um, are one, the notion of emptiness, and second, the idea of the two truths as a room mm -hmm. for thinking about, um, about reality. So Nagarjuna famously argues that everything is empty of any um, intrinsic uh, nature or any intrinsic existence, the Sanskrit term is svabhava. Um, and that includes, by the way, emptiness itself, which gets things um, Even into more very, interesting. very deep territory very quickly. So we very often um, naively think of entities, and in particular ourselves, but even entities around us, like you know, books and pens and cows and automobiles, as having a kind of intrinsic nature that makes them the things that they are, right. or a kind of in ontological independence, so that we can talk about them independent of their causes, their effects, things around them. And Nagarjuna argues that nothing exists in that way, that everything exists only dependently interdependently dependent on causes and conditions, um, holes dependent upon their parts, parts dependent upon their holes, and the reality and the, um, the identity of anything depending on what he calls conceptual imputation, that is the way that we, we think about things. Um, so he argues that things are empty of independence, essence, intrinsic nature. So this doesn't mean non-existence, but rather it's a mode of existence. Now, connected to this, very closely connected to this, is the idea of the two truths. Um, generally, the two truths are translated conventional truth and ultimate truth. And in this sense, the ultimate truth about anything is its emptiness. Mm -hmm. And um, nothing ends up existing ultimately. Ultimately, everything's empty of the kind of existence one would have to have to exist ultimately. And again, that means that everything exists only conventionally which, of course, means that ultimate truth also exists only conventionally. And so we come around in this neat, snake-eating-its-tail spiral to Nagarjuna's view that while we have to distinguish these two truths, conventional or nominal truth and ultimate truth, at a higher level, we have to identify them. And so the ultimate truth is that there is no ultimate truth. 
that everything exists only conventionally. Um, so these are the, the, some of the deepest theses of Nagarjuna. Um, in the epistemological domain, Nagarjuna is also um, renowned as the first genuine coherentist. Because, again, you can see that this ontology, in terms of emptiness, rejects any foundations, rejects the idea that there's a fundamental basic nature of reality. The idea is that there is no nature of reality. That's what things are empty of. Similarly, in the domain of justification, Nagarjuna argues that our means of justifying things, that is, the inference rules, perception, the kind of use of testimony, um, all depends, in the end, upon things that we know. But things that we know all depend upon our mechanisms for gaining knowledge. So the mechanisms for gaining knowledge, the so-called pramanas, or instruments of knowledge, depend for their justification on the objects of knowledge, the prameyas, as they're called in Sanskrit. But our knowledge of the prameyas depends upon the pramanas. And these things are all mutually dependent with no foundation. So the introduction of kind of coherentism, which is a very popular epistemology in the contemporary world, um, was in the Buddhist world uh, in the second century of the common era, long before it was ever dreamed of in European philosophy. So these are some of the things that are, um, that are important about Nagarjuna's philosophy. So he founds this Madhyamaka Middle Way School, and then a, the, uh, there's an enormous amount of scholarship in India and Tibet, and now in the West, as well as in China, devoted to commentaries on Nagarjuna, different interpretations of Nagarjuna, applications of Nagarjuna's thought in different domains. And it's fair to say he's um, one of the um, most profoundly influential philosophers ever to have worked in India. Mm. So I, I, I had this question for later, but I guess it makes sense to ask it now, um, because, you know, what you're saying in terms of how everything is de dependently arising, but de everything is dependent on something else, to the, but it's not resting on any absolute. Is that kind of essentially yeah. the point? Um, so then, you know, Buddhist philosophy is understandably referred to as atheistic. So then how does Buddhist philosophy answer the, the question of the absolute um, in, in the sense that how does dependent origination originate from, you know, from what source place or how do they, how do they respond to that, um, to that question that dependent origination has to originate somewhere? Does it just, just kind of a rabbit hole that you, you fall down and there's no like ultimate and foundation? No, and no ultimate foundation. That is um, everything that we can identify is is interdependent. There is no ground on which things are, are depend. There's a wonderful metaphor from the Chinese uh, Chan philosopher Hakuin, um, who says that the realization he's talking about, you know, this, about Zen realization. He said the realization that everything is empty and that you yourself are empty and that everything is interdependent is like a great death. It's the death of of your ordinary conception of things, and that's like leaping off a great cliff. He says, but that's okay, because nobody's ever been hurt by falling. You're only hurt if you hit the ground, and there is no ground. Yeah, yeah. So what are a couple of the other, a couple of ideas, uh, you know, either from Madhyamaka or, or, uh, or other um, uh, regions of Buddhist thought that contribute to or move along the conversation of contemporary philosophy, if you want to share a couple examples? Sure. So we've talked about the notion of an attack on essence. Yeah. Um, along with that <clears throat> comes an emphasis on the role of convention, on a role of the way that we talk and of language, the way that we think about things, 
um, and the structure of our own minds in constituting the ontology of our ordinary lives. Mm. Um, these are ideas, of course, that do get taken up in the 20th century in the West in the work of people like Heidegger and Wittgenstein, um, and as well as by Quine and Davidson. But they're um, implicit and rich in the, um, in the early Indian tradition uh, and come out of Nagarjuna and his great commentator, Chandrakirti, um, whose picture you can see on the cover of Engaging Buddhism is one of my great heroes there. Um, but also, um, we've got um, important ideas out of Nagarjuna and Chandrakirti um, and their commentators that take us into the field of ethics. Yeah, um, yeah. That is the centering of uh, dispositions like care um, and uh, sympathetic joy and a decentering of egocentrism, the kind of uh, escape from an egocentric view of the world as the foundation of genuine ethical engagement that I think is extraordinarily important. I think Buddhist ethics as a kind of moral phenomenology, especially as it's adumbrated by um, uh, Nagarjuna's disciple Aryadeva and then by Shantideva in the 8th century is an enormous uh, contribution to world philosophy. Um, so these are, other, these are other domains in which um, there's tremendous contributions. The other one, of course, is that Buddhist, Buddhist logicians and Nagarjuna among them um, are some of the first folks to think of uh, four-valuational logic, to think that Sentences can be true, false, both, or neither. So that logical space is uh, a four-pointed or a four-cornered space, the words judges go to your four corners, um, rather than just a two-cornered space. And that logic turns out to be the foundation of a lot of contemporary logical theory, and in particular of computer logic, where we have to look at databases that might be consistent or inconsistent, that might have contradictions in them or gaps. Mm -hmm. And uh, Buddhist logicians saw those possibilities very early on. So all of these are um, intriguing contributions from uh, the world of Madhyamaka. Amazing. Okay, so I want to um, go back to ethics just for a moment because I, I, you, in another interview, uh, um, a written interview, you mentioned ethics as um, alternatively as the study of how we should experience the world, of how we should experience yes. the world, and that um, could you just draw a distinction between or um, talk about how that's different about how ethics is generally considered currently? Sure. Um... And so I want to be careful because I don't want to get into kind of mindless West bashing here. But um, when we look at the three dominant trends in ethical theory in the West, and say dominant because there are tiny minority voices, but the dominant trends are um, what we might call aritaic or virtue ethics that comes out of Aristotle, where we ask about what happiness is and a flourishing life and what the virtues are in a human being that make it possible to lead a happy, flourishing life. Um, deontology that's associated with people like Kant, um, but also could be associated with the uh, Christian theological tradition. Um, and that's a, a tradition of ethics that says what we want to think about when we think about ethics um, isn't, uh, in the first instance, virtues, but our obligations, our duties, and our permissions and rights. And that's the kind of ethical theory, for instance, that undergirds the American Constitution, which talks about our public ethical life in terms of our rights and duties. Or 
um, in the consequentialist or utilitarian tradition out of people like Bentham and Mill um, that takes ethical reflections primarily uh, uh, concerning actions and which actions have the most favorable consequences or least unfavorable consequences. And that's, of course, a, an approach to ethics that's dominant in economic theory and public welfare theory. Um, there are also, um, as I say, other strains in ethics, in particular the British sentimentalists like Shaftesbury and Hutchison and Hume, um, who really do come a little bit closer to what the Buddhists had in mind, and that is, I think, trying to develop a theory of moral sentiments. But even not quite exactly what the Buddhists are doing. Because what I'm suggesting is that Buddhist ethical theory, maybe not better, maybe not worse than uh, the Western approaches to ethics that we've just been scouting, but different and a new voice in the conversation is a way that, of thinking about ethics that sees ethics as a, what I call a moral phenomenology, um, that sees ethical cultivation as cultivation of perception. Because one of the uh, central insights in Buddhist psychology, and this goes way back to the kind of pre-Majyamaka, pre-Mahayana um, moral psychology in Buddhism, developed in the Abhidharma and by people um, in the Theravada tradition, but then gets carried up and made even more sophisticated, I think, in the Mahayana, um, is that the, the act of perception itself is already morally laden, is already right. involved in action readying, that whenever we see, we see as, yes. and we are responsible for the way that we see ourselves, others, and the world around us. Um, it's one thing to see somebody as a potential friend and another thing to see somebody as a potential adversary. One thing to see somebody as a colleague, another to see them as a subordinate. Uh, one thing to see somebody as um, a source of uh, pleasure and happiness or to see somebody as a source of conflict. And each of these um, has action readiness implications. In the contemporary psychological literature, we see this being worked out in the field of implicit bias theory. And so if um, we see somebody of another race, for instance, as implicitly and threatening, even if we don't consciously think that way, but if at the level of perception we see them as threatening yeah, and our yeah. blood pressure goes up and our uh, readiness to see an object in their hand as a weapon rather than as a book um, increases, we have a morally problematic situation. Yeah. Now, this is to see not a matter that we might be failing in our obligations, or that we might be performing actions that may not have the best consequences, but that our very perceptual orientation to the world may be an inappropriate one. Mm -hmm. And so Buddhist moral psychology, moral phenomenology, directs us to thinking of the first and most important target of moral cultivation as our perceptual set. And I think that's a fascinating addition to the uh, to the language of ethics. Yeah, that's super fascinating. So now I, I want to uh, connect that to what will be our, our final question, which is a political one. So, mm -hmm. um, so uh, because I, I guess for me, I, I sense a tension between what we might say is the currently mainstream um, mode of politics, which is about identity and and mm -hmm. and and a very you know overly determined perhaps sense of self, and mm -hmm. then we have the and then we have Buddhist Buddhist philosophy contributing and, and, and on some Western philosophy as well, 
this sense of no self and 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 all of this interdependence that we're talking about. So, in what way? I, how can we reconcile, or in what way does does um, Buddhist philosophy push up against this um, culturally kind of socialized desire to? attach ourselves to certain identities and to see the whole world as kind of, you know, these warring identities? Yeah, I think that um, Buddhist philosophers are um, implicitly and explicitly um, running against that tide, right. um, arguing that identity politics is not a great thing. Right. Um, it may be better to celebrate an identity than to disparage one. Sure. It may be better to be happy with one's identity and proud of it than ashamed of it. But it may be better still to stop experiencing the world um, as somebody who has a fixed identity in a world of other people who have fixed same or different identities. Um, and the Buddhist idea is that identity politics is probably not a solution to the problem of oppression, um, but rather um, a redefinition of it. So um, my thought is that identity politics is something it would be best to overcome, not something that would be best to do better. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excellent. Okay, so that's about, yep, we're getting about to that time. So I just wanted to end with um, perhaps an opportunity for you to share. Um, well, actually, first, I want to ask you a couple of rec book recommendations that you would want to suggest. We have this resource called the Embodied Philosopher's Library, which is essentially a, a, a large reading list of, of book recommendations from past interviewees. Is there anything you know related to the topics we've talked about that um, somebody maybe new to these topics would be interested in? Evan Thompson's wonderful book, uh, uh, Waking, Dreaming, Being, I think is fabulous. Um, that's a new wonderful book. Um, Maria Heim's book, The Forerunner of All Things, which is about intention, I think is a, a terrific book. Um, gee, you've caught me on the foot because I'm on the back foot because I'm not uh, no worries. thinking about all the best recent stuff. Um, That's okay. Two is, all, two is all right. This book, Buddhism as Philosophy, is oh, a yes. wonderful book. Mm -hmm. Um... That's a, that's a starter list. Yeah, that's a great list. Okay, Jay, and then uh, lastly, is there any way that others can, um, if you want to share any of your websites or anything upcoming projects that people might want to know about? Sure, you can generally find out where I am and what I'm working on and see some work in progress at my website, jgarfield.org. Um, and that also has links to all of my books. If you want to buy a bunch of books, yeah, why not? Uh, rip them off. Um, that That's cool. Um, but that's the best way to find out what I'm up to. All right, great. Thank you so much, Jay. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right, talk to you soon. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jay Garfield. If you want to learn more about Jay, you can find him at jgarfield.org. Until next time, friends, bye-bye. <laughs>